right? All of these systems are set up to say, if you want to survive, if you want to be able to eat and live in a house and not be put in prison and not be thrown away and not be killed, you need to comply with these rules. You need to live in these ways. Um, and, and you need to believe these things because only by living in these ways and following these rules and believing these things, can you make sure that you stay in the class of people that matter? Welcome to the Multi-Amory Podcast. I'm Jace. I'm Emily. And I'm Dedeker. We believe in looking to the future of relationships, not maintaining the status quo of the past. So whether you're monogamous, polyamorous, swinging, casually dating, or if you just do relationships differently, we see you and we're here for you. On this episode of the Multi-Amory Podcast, we're going to be exploring the incredibly important topic of restorative justice, what it is, what it's not, and what each of us can do to make our communities and our world a better, safer place. And to join us for this today is Andy Eisenson, Senior Legal Director for Chosen Family Law Center, Incorporated, based in New York City, working with and advocating for LGBTQ, polyamorous, and non-traditional families. Andy, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. I'm really excited to be on. Yeah. 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 So a uh, really quick content warning to our listeners. We're going to be talking about the criminal justice system. We're going to be talking possibly about abuse, possibly about suicide. Um, we're not going to be talking about these things in any kind of graphic detail, but they will probably come up in this discussion. So take care of yourselves out there. Um, so Andy, we want to start off just, I guess, as broadly as possible and starting off with what are the basics of what restorative justice is or transformative justice, what it is, and uh, how how it compares to our current justice system. Yeah, so so one of the one of the big questions is always what's the difference between restorative and transformative justice? Why do some people use one word, one some people use the other word? Um there're sort of two subcategories of the same concept. The underlying concept of both restorative and transformative justice is that the the aim of responding as a community to harm within that community should be healing rather than punishment. The idea of restorative justice in particular, um, it's a little bit more small scale, a little more zoomed in. So it's looking at the relationships between the people involved, the individual needs of the person who experienced harm. And we use these terms um, person who experienced harm and person who caused harm or person who was responsible for harm, because in all levels of this, we're trying to resist the logics and the language of the criminal justice system. And when we find ourselves using terms like victim and perpetrator, often the logics and the emotions that come with those terms come along with them. Mm. So with restorative justice, we're looking at um, work to heal the harm that was suffered by the person who experienced harm, um, to reintegrate them into their community, to find what they need to feel safe, uh, and to, to be sort of restored to, um, to a place of safety and wholeness. You know, this is with the understanding, of course, that 
a lot of the harms that we're dealing with do take something away that can never be given back. And, um, and we're not trying to or pretending that we can return to the place that we were in as individuals or as a community before the harm happened, um, but rather heal and grow. By contrast, transformative justice tends to take a little bit of a broader view, um, and it, it's based around the idea that when something, uh, when some kind of harm happens in a community between the members of the community, it's not just the fault of the person who committed the harm, who did a bad thing because they're bad and they have to be punished or thrown out and then everything will be fine again, but rather that everyone in the community is responsible for collectively setting the norms and, and community agreements that govern the behavior of the people in the community towards each other. And that when those norms allow harm to happen, it's the responsibility of everyone in the space who collectively contributed to the norms and, and, um, and base ideas of the community that permitted that harm to happen. And so the responsibility to transform the conditions that permitted the harm lies with everyone in the community and not just with the person who committed the harm. So for example, if we look at this on a larger scale, you know, before we zoom in and talk about polyamorous community, um, if you look at, let's say, um, I own a, uh, a bodega, I own a, I own a corner store, and Jace, uh, you come into my corner store and you um, you take a loaf of bread and you stick it in your bag and you run out the door. Now, in the traditional, in the criminal justice system that our, the, the broader legal landscape that we exist in uses, the there's a couple of things that that means. One thing is that um, you, Jace, you're now a criminal. Yeah, totally. Right? You did a bad thing. You are now a bad person. You have rendered yourself in the category of people who um, deserve punishment, um, who cannot contribute to their community in a meaningful or positive way, and who, um, at the base of it, um, kind of don't matter, right? right? The other thing that this means is that I will be, under the logic of the criminal justice system, which I we call carceral logic, the logic of incarceration. Under carceral logic, the way to make me whole again, the way to heal the harm that I have suffered at your hands um, by you stealing my bread uh, is for you to be punished. Right. If you are punished, I'll feel better. I, my harm will be made whole. My hurt will be healed. Um, now, if we think about that for just a second, it doesn't make sense. Right. It doesn't actually make sense that I will be in a better position if I see you suffering. Right. Right. The, so we have we have been taught this and we're going to talk a little later about why we've been taught that it works this way. Yeah. Because it's not for no reason. I feel um, like you're. But, yeah. No, I just feel like you're Jean Valjean and Javert in this situation. <laughs> I'm totally I Jean Valjean I kept here, being yeah. like, yeah, but you're exactly. <laughs> see. In that situation, we're rooting for Jean Valjean. So actually, right. Jace, and yeah. aren't we always really? <laughs> Maybe I don't know. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm I've always been an Angel Ra guy, but we don't have to <laughs> we don't have to take that tangent. But in in uh, from a restorative justice framework, 
um, just in this tiny microcosmic sort of very simplified story in restorative justice um, that we go to you, Jace, and we're like, Jace, you took Andy's bread, give it back. Mm-hmm. You know, the thing that makes this better is that the harm is healed, that it's fixed, that I get my bread back, you right. know, and that the the harm to my business and to my livelihood and my ability to continue to, like, survive myself is repaired. Okay. So that's the first step. Um, when we then zoom out and take a transformative justice lens to this, um, then we look at it a more look at it on a more systemic level and we say, well, OK, Jace. Like you are a human who is alive and has value and um, you should be able to eat when you're hungry. People don't steal bread for no reason. You know, you didn't steal bread because you decided that you wanted to mess with me for no reason. You probably stole bread because you couldn't afford it and you needed food. And if that's the case, the solution to this problem is not to punish you. It's to help you get into a situation where if you need food, you can get it. And so we look at these broader systems um, and these are the things that are actually engendering the problems, right? So the problem here is not Jace is a jerk and should be put in a box forever. The problem here is systemic poverty, right? Got it. The problem here is that not everyone who lives in our society that needs to eat food on a regular basis in order to survive is able to do that. And so, if we refocus towards that being the problem, then putting people in cages makes a lot less sense, right? Right. So if I were to kind of sum up then the difference between the two, that transformative justice is more the part where we're looking at how can we fix these problems so that so that I don't feel the need to steal bread. And then restorative justice is more about looking at between you and me, how can we restore you as much as possible and kind of get you back to a place of of as much wholeness as possible. So that's how I use them differently. I should be clear that, um, these are terms. They're a little bit like, um, queer that like, I see. Yeah. kind of means a lot of things. Yeah. Different people that use them, use them differently. Um, and my definitions are not more or less valid than anyone else's. That's the distinction that I make when I use them. Okay. So I think that for most of our listeners listening to this, it's very clear that this is so different from how our current justice system operates. And I want to know more about the concept of carceral logic. And specifically, you know, we we read an article that you wrote on Medium a couple of years ago that was fantastic, where you did talk about and kind of tease about how capitalism and oppression have influenced us really internalizing that carceral logic. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, Um so we're, we're going to take a really broad view here, right? Um, there are a lot of intersecting systems of oppression that modify the landscape of, of the world that we live in. And at the base of them, all of them are about sorting who matters from who doesn't, who's important and who isn't, who deserves to be resourced and safe and have what they need and who doesn't. Right. And those that boundary is often drawn on racial lines. When it's drawn on racial lines, it looks like white supremacy. It says white people matter and people of color and particularly black people do not. When it's drawn on gender lines, it says men and masculine people matter and women and feminine people don't. 
when it's drawn on class lines, it says wealthy people matter and poor people don't. Um, and, you know, all of this is the enforcement mechanism of us, of the state. Um, the reason that we need to believe this, the state needs us to believe this is because if we didn't believe that there were people who didn't matter, we would never tolerate prisons. Mm. So we need to be very carefully taught that there are classes of people whose well-being doesn't matter, who are so bad and so worthless that there's nothing that can be done to them that is over the top um, in order for us to accept the idea that um, we throw whole classes of people away um, and turn them into an unpaid labor force, um, which, by the way, runs our whole economy. So all of this is necessary in order for our economy to have the unpaid labor force that it needs to keep running. Um, so all of this is built on the foundations of like our country desperately needs slavery in order to keep working the way it works. And if we want to question any part of this, we have to question all of it. Um, and so we can't we can't talk about things like restorative and transformative justice without talking about the prison industrial complex and without talking about its roots in slavery and white supremacy. Wow. Yeah. So like that capitalism's tied in there as well as racism mm -hmm. and sexism and classism and just sort of all, all these things kind of wrapped up together in in this system that's somewhat fragile if you examine it too much. Right. Well, it's 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 so powerful. Um, you know, it because it holds all of these things that we need to survive over us and demands our compliance. Right. All of these systems are set up to say, if you want to survive, if you want to be able to eat and live in a house and not be put in prison and not be thrown away and not be killed, you need to comply with these rules. You need to live in these ways. Um, and and you need to believe these things because only by living in these ways and following these rules and believing these things can you make sure that you stay in the class of people that matter like that's what's at stake because if you if you if you don't believe the right things if you don't stay in the class of people that matter the consequence is that you get put in the class of people that don't matter um, and so it's necessary for the society to be built up in a way that retains a class of people that don't matter as that consequence. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like kind of what's blanketed over the top of all of this is what I imagine comes from, you know, a culture that's based on Christian morality, this idea that it's possible to have purely good people, purely bad people, someone's going to heaven, someone's going to hell you know, like already kind of built into this belief system, this very carceral belief system, you know, that ultimately, you know, either you get the ultimate reward of going to heaven or the ultimate punishment of you really don't matter because you're going to hell and even God doesn't care, you know, because you're going to hell. Um, you know, and, and I think that that's something that I definitely see really, really permeate um, to such a fundamental level, the way that we think about human beings, because it's also, even if you didn't, come with any kind of Christian upbringing personally, you know, it's also reinforced by 
all of our media of the good guy and the bad guy, the unquestioning good guy and the unquestioning bad guy that I feel like that's another big part of this is that as soon as someone's labeled as bad, it's just so easy to think like, well, then they deserve whatever they have coming to them. You're absolutely right. Including hell. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So could we before, so we, we want to go into kind of some common objections to restorative justice, but before we go there, I was wondering, could you give us kind of some more concrete examples of this rather than kind of the abstract sort of Jean Valjean, you know, very simplified, someone's poor and so they steal a bread and that's, you know, what about, what about in our real day-to-day lives? Like how is this, how is this being applied and how is it different from the way the normal criminal justice system is doing it? Yeah. So one, one way that I like to think about it is that these alternative justice or community justice systems are just a systematization of how we treat each other when we love each other. Hmm. So if, if my partner and I are, you know, we're, we're living in our house together and, um, and they do something that hurts me, um, Let's say they they eat the last piece of pizza and I really, really wanted that last piece of pizza. Um, As opposed to if someone in my in my uh, office building takes my last piece of pizza out of the fridge and I don't know them. You know, we don't have a relationship. They eat my last piece of pizza. Those are two very different things. right? Right. And I react to them differently. If a stranger eats my last piece of pizza that I really wanted, it's very easy for me to write that stranger off and say, you know, this person is a jerk. They don't have any respect for my personal pizza. Um, you know, they're they're thoughtless. I don't ever want to have anything to do with them. And I know that from this one piece of information. Right. right. Yeah. If my partner eats my last piece of pizza, that's not going to probably be my reaction. Right. I'm probably not going to write them off completely because they ate my pizza. Probably I'm going to say, hey, I really wanted that pizza. Can you get me another piece of pizza, please? You know, or can you like make those brownies that you make that I like so much? Um, Or can you in some way let me know that like you didn't do this because you don't care about my well-being um, and that actually you can demonstrate that our relationship is strong, even though my feelings are hurt by this thing that you did. Right. Yeah. Or or even if you were just like, hey, I'm pissed off because you ate my pizza, they get the chance to say, oh, my gosh, I'm sorry. I'll go get another one or like they could even offer it. Right. Even if even if you don't ask. Yeah. Right. So so community justice is just that scaled up. Okay. Um, so we all already have the instincts inside us to function in this way. Um, it's just a question of reorienting how we're applying them so that we're treating all of the members of our community as if we care about them. Hmm. Now, you can't just start acting as though there's a basis of mutual trust without building a basis of mutual trust. Right. right. So these things can't exist in a vacuum. This is why a lot of the time, you know, communities, groups, uh, conferences, whatever, they'll call me and they'll say, we had an incident. Can you come in and fix it with restorative justice? And it's like, it doesn't really work that way um, because you can't just plonk restorative justice on top of an existing situation that's dysfunctional and have it fix the problem when you're already in crisis. A lot of these practices are about how it, how your community operates on the day to day. Um, So for example, a lot of the practitioners who are doing restorative justice right now are doing it in schools. They're doing it with children. Um, And it's incredible. I think it's the coolest thing. 
because they teach these kids and we're talking like elementary and middle school kids like children they teach them how to circle to do a talking circle um and they do regular circles as part of their school day and then these children once they know how to do it they have it as an instinct when they get into conflict amongst themselves instead of going to a teacher instead of fighting about it their response to conflict is let's take this to circle because they know they have this this practice tool they already have this basis of trust they're already in circle together they know they can do it um so so it has to be something you know it's not just a crisis management tool you have to have it already yeah and that's something we'll talk about that a little bit later um because i like first of all i I think that's just so different from how i've seen restorative justice at least use in the online communities that I participate in that I think there's still kind of this, this sense held by these kind of microcultures online that it is this like situational, we can just kind of plunk it in. Right. You know, and like, yeah, 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 like for this situation, this is going to be the bandaid that we're going to use, you know, (laughs) which is understandable because I think that's how I, what I thought about this also, you know, honestly, on the surface level that way, it would be helpful. Yeah. Yeah. And probably easier. It would definitely be easier. Unfortunately, you got to totally reorient your stance with regards to the prison industrial complex and capitalism if you want to fix this problem, you know? Oh, boy. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that's big. But it it does sound like the underlying issues are the things that need to be changed as opposed to, especially within like a a tight knit community, for example, or like the polyamorous community, which in for many of us is very tight knit. And we do know a lot of the same people. And so it's as though these things need to be implemented from the very beginning to a degree, because that is the thing still in restorative justice that I've seen online. It still has this feeling of here's the the person who did the very bad thing. And we're all you know, it, trying to come to some sort of agreement or happiness or, or goodness coming out of this, but it still pits everyone against that person in a way. And yeah. that's, it, it doesn't sound like that's what we're going for here. What you see it as the potential for goodness is very yeah. different from that. You know, my, my teacher says the best time to start a restorative justice practice is 10 years ago. Um, yeah. Right, yeah. And the, sec- the second best time is right now. Hmm. Yeah. Um, so, so one of the, like, let's, let's take as an example, something that happens all the time, um, in polyamorous community and really in a lot of these communities where like personal interest and professional field overlap in kind of a nebulous way. So like the field of sexuality is one of these, the field of psychedelics is one of these, um, often the field of spirituality where like at, events and at talks and things you have people who are there because it's their job because they write books in the field because they're you know they sort of they have name recognition and you have people who are there who are you know enthusiastic amateurs and they just care a lot about it um but they're not you know it's not their job right um when you have that kind of complexity in different reasons for being there you end up with a lot of potential for misuse of power Right. Because you have this complicated mix of interpersonal power and professional power and um, and power in in the context of the structures that you're in, whether it's a conference or a, a online group or a and, you know, a, a meetup. Um, 
you know, whose house are you meeting at? Who's bringing the snacks? Who's got the money? You know, all of these power dynamics influence how people interact with each other. Um, and it leads to a lot of possibility for coercion because the person who's got the power doesn't see the power. You know, if you're a person who has power, whether it's in your circumstances, whether it's systemic power, whether it's power based on your, you know, being white or being a man or being wealthy, like whatever it is, it doesn't look to you like you're exerting power over people. It just looks to you like everything's fine and people are being really nice and, and giving with you. And so things look mutual when they're actually coercive. Mm. Which, which puts this responsibility on the people who have the power in these situations to really dedicate themselves to understanding what that means, what it looks like, how it works, and what they can do to mitigate it. Because if they don't really put a lot of effort into that, they're going to end up messing a lot of people up without making a conscious decision to do that. And I think that's one of the things that we see happen all the time in polyamorous communities in the sex positivity world, you know, where these like really um, like prestigious, uh, you know, people, these people with a lot of community cachet um, that people listen to, um, all of a sudden they'll get this avalanche of call outs of people saying, you know, this person coerced me, this person manipulated me, this person abused me, you know, and all of those experiences of pain and, and, um, and hurt are genuine. You know, I'm not under no circumstances. Am I suggesting that they're not real? Um, and also that can coexist with this person didn't make a conscious decision to do any of that. This is one of the fundamental ideas of, um, community justice, right? That if we if we look at the logic, if we look at the carceral logic of who does bad things, it's bad people and they do bad things because they're bad. Right. If we pull that apart and look at it in a little bit more of a nuanced way, who does bad things? Well, all of us do bad things. And who is a bad person? There's no such thing as a bad person. There's no such thing as a good person. Like we all have the capacity to hurt each other. We all have the capacity to do incredible acts of kindness and selflessness. Um, we're all complicated, mixed up people who, you know, cannot be categorized in such a simple way. And so we're all, if we accept that we all have the capacity to cause harm, uh, then we're going to move through these interactions with a lot more cautiousness and a lot more care around the power that we're wielding. Um, but without realizing that, we have to pull apart, right, um, deciding to cause harm and causing harm. Mm. So, so when, I was, when I was first teaching about this, um, I had this story about a, um, a car. This isn't a true story, by the way. Um, so let's imagine uh, that you're driving your car. We're in New York City. You're driving your car down Broadway. And you see me in the crosswalk ahead of you. Now, one of three things happens. In scenario number one, you're driving, uh, you're, you know, you're a good driver, you're doing your best, you're being careful, uh, but there's ice on the road. Your car skids out of control without you meaning to, without any intention on your part, mm -hmm. your car runs me over and breaks my leg. 
in scenario number two, you're driving, you're being careful, you know, you're not being negligent, um, but you sneeze while you're driving. While you sneeze without meaning to, your foot goes down on the gas pedal, your car runs me over and breaks my leg. In scenario number three, you see me in the crosswalk ahead of you and you're like, oh, fuck that guy. I hate Andy. <laughs> you slam your foot down on the gas pedal on purpose, meaning to hurt me. You run me over and break my leg. Now, what's different in those three scenarios? Intent. Bingo. What's the same? The, hurt, uh, the harm that was caused. My leg. Yeah. Yeah. Your leg is my, broken. My leg. Does it matter to my leg bones what was in your head at the time? Nah, not, not at all. really. <laughs> um, so we could take this to say intent doesn't matter. I'm going to say intent doesn't matter as much as we think it matters because it does matter to the extent that it informs what you do next, because that's how I know what was in your head. Right. Because if you get out of your car and you're like, holy shit, your leg's broken. Let me call you an ambulance. I'm so sorry. Let me help you get out of the road. I'm here. Like, I got you. I'm going to take care of this. What I learned from that is you probably didn't mean to hurt me and you're, you probably want me to be okay. Right. Mm -hmm. If you dr drive away, just flipping me the bird in your rear view mirror, I learned something different from that. Right. You know, and if you get out of your car and you're like, well, I didn't mean to run you over. So why is your leg so broken? <laughs> what I learned right. from that. It sounds, sounds absurd in that yeah. situation, but Definitely. yeah, we, <laughs> but we do that with more emotional hurt. For sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, but I think we also, you know, we have this aphorism that gets tossed around a lot in these spaces of, you know, intent is not more important than impact or, you know, intent does not cancel out impact. However, <laughs> I do think that then that aphorism kind of has the subtext to it of therefore intent doesn't matter at all. You know, which I think is also not quite accurate. At least that's yeah. the way that I've seen it used is that like yeah. impact is the only thing by which we're going to judge the situation. We don't care about intent at all. And I do like you mentioning that it's like intent is important, but not as important as you think it is. It's kind of like the, the in-between, the middle ground there. Right. Well, it's important to the extent that it informs how you respond. Um, because if your intent is genu genuinely, I don't want this person to be hurt. I want them to be okay then that's what your actions are going to reflect, you know? And if you hurt someone without meaning to, and you genuinely don't want them to be hurt, that's going to show in what you do next. If you're more invested in your idea of yourself as innocent than you are in them being okay, that's also going to show in your actions and what you do next. And that's what people are going to see, you know? So when people respond to being told, Hey, you hurt me by saying, no, I didn't, I didn't do anything wrong. I'm not a bad person. Right. That defensiveness, it makes perfect sense if you're someone that's been steeping in carceral logic your whole life. Which is all of us, sleep. right? Which is all of us. That's <laughs> I mean, the exactly. thing is that like it, then yeah. it really becomes clear right. it's such a systemic thing that, of course, yeah. no, we can't come forward and take ownership of the harm that we cause because then that would then label we're us saying as a we're bad person. Now we can get and we can't that do that people, because then yeah. we're going to be cut off our community. And so, and exactly. then it's just, yeah, it just spirals mm. out. Jeez. Exactly. It's terrifying. Wow. The consequences, the stakes are so high. Um, that's part of why trying to implement this stuff as a band-aid is too little too late. Mm. Um, because if you're, if you're trying to step forward into accountability, that takes trusting your community to catch you and your community, wow. if your community is not ready to catch you, you could end up face planting. 
I've definitely seen that. Oh, yeah. all like, over the place. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I think that's I've a big definitely thing. seen that. It, I mean, yeah. it reminds me of when I was like learning how to drive as a teenager that I remember one of the things I was taught was if you're ever in an accident, never say you're sorry. You could yeah. say, I'm sorry that that happened or like, wow, like this is terrible. Let me get you help, but never say you're sorry because then you're admitting fault. And I, yeah. and it's like and that. The, your insurance will go way up. Right. And I remember like <laughs> yeah. when I, I was in an accident where someone hit me and they said they were sorry. She was like 16, right? Just started driving and she hit me on my motorcycle and she was so apologetic. And in my head, I was just like, oh, like you, no one taught you not to say that. Like you shouldn't be saying these things. And that's fucked up when I really think about the whole like implications of that for us socially. That, that yeah. to me is like, gosh, this girl needs to learn. Like, this, you know, yeah. <laughs> and I'm going to teach her by suing her. She needs to learn to apologize less. Right. Yeah. Right. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, I think there might be a different problem there, but I hear you. Absolutely. <laughs> this is not something a few people can functionally do within, you know, as an island in a sea of people still operating from carceral logic and fear. This is something that we all have to decide to do together. So we're going to address some of the more common criticisms of restorative justice. But before we do that, we're going to talk about a couple ways that you can support our show. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. For a long time now, we've been fans of adamandeve.com for getting sex toys or lingerie or accessories, things like that. It's just a fantastic resource with a huge selection. And now, not only do we have a fantastic offer, but we also have a promo code that will work on adammail.com and evestoys.com, which are their sites specifically for LGBTQ audiences. And our code is fantastic. It's 50% off of almost any item in the store, and free discreet shipping when you use our code MULTI. Yes, we love adamandeve.com and have for years. They are our oldest and longest sponsor, and they just keep on giving great gifts to us and to our listeners. You can bring more pleasure and satisfaction into your bedroom by going to adamandeve.com, adammail.com, or evestoys.com and select any one item. It can be you know, an adventurous new toy or anything you desire, something fun, something sexy, whatever sounds good. So just enter offer code MULTI at checkout and you'll get 50% off almost any item plus free shipping. That's MULTI, M-U-L-T-I at adamandeve.com, adammail.com or evestoys.com. This is an exclusive offer that is specific to this podcast and it's better than any offer that is currently available on their site. So again, use code MULTI to get you not just the 50% discount, but also the 100% free shipping. Code M-U-L-T-I. So I wanted to get into some of the criticisms that people have of restorative justice. There are quite a few, and I'm interested to see you pick those apart. But one of the (laughs) first ones is uh, that it trivializes crime, particularly men's violence against women. So there are a bunch more, but that one to me is a big one, and I'd, I'd be interested to hear what you think. 
um, can you say what you mean by trivializes? Like, well, this, yeah, I think you, you almost kind of got into it earlier of this thing of on the one hand, you're wanting to say, I always want to believe the victim or in this, the receiver of harm, if we want to use the restorative terms, right? Like I always want to believe that person. And so if then I'm saying, yeah, I believe you, but also I'm not going to agree with you that this person's a bad person and should be exiled and punished that like, oh, well then you're just letting them get away with it. Yeah. Just, there is this idea out there that especially I think in the me too movement that it's like, okay, this person did this thing and therefore they need to be gone out of the community at large forever. And they can never be, they can never enter back into it. Like, you know, some people go so far as to be like, lock them up forever or cut off an appendage or something along those lines. Like they, they get very visceral reactions to it. So I think on the flip side of this, some people might say, well, if you are wanting restorative justice, then it's trivializing the harm that this person caused to this other person. But yeah, if you can parse that apart. Okay. So I think, I think part of this comes from the way that people misuse restorative justice to mean we don't want to do anything about this. Hmm. Right. Because uh, it's, it's, it's easier to slap that term on top of saying, you know, oh, well, we don't we don't think this is such a big deal. Um, You know, they didn't really do anything wrong. It doesn't really matter. We're not going to do anything. And we're going to call it restorative justice because that is, you know, that is a a less punitive way of responding. Um, And I think when you say restorative justice and what you mean is we're not listening to your story and we don't care about what happened to you. Absolutely trivializing. Shouldn't do that. It's bad. So the way that I actually got into this work um, is like, must have been like 10 years ago at this point. Um, I uh, I found out that um, the guy who had abused me for years was suicidal. I found out that he was trying to kill himself, like actively. Um And I had spent a really long time sort of assuming that I wanted this guy to suffer and die because that was the narrative that had been just sort of plunked on top of the hurt that I was feeling. Um, This person hurt me. I would feel better if they were suffering. I would feel better if they died. Um, And I'd never really questioned it. Um, I just assumed that it was true because that's the way it works. Mm -hmm. And I found out that this guy was in such distress. He was suffering so much that he was trying to die and was maybe going to die. Um, And I was like, okay, so I feel better, right? Why don't I feel better? Mm. He's suffering. He may, he's maybe going to die. He's being as punished as, a person could really be and my hurt hasn't gone away something about how i was taught about how this works is wrong hmm. wow and so i had to go into trying to research like what are different ways of understanding this if if this guy suffering isn't going to heal my pain then what actually is going to heal my pain what will actually make this better um and for me what actually 
is, you know, has brought me healing over the last years is doing this work. Um, and being with other survivors in their pain and saying, I see you, I care about what happened to you. What happened to us matters and no one can tell us that it doesn't. And at the same time, I can tell you from personal experience that punishment doesn't create healing in the way that the prison system tells us it will. Mm -hmm. um, and what I want to work towards is actual healing. Let's find out for you, a person who has been harmed, what actually would healing look like for you? How can we actually transform this world into one that wouldn't allow the things that happened to you to happen to anyone else? Like that's the, that's the solution that I find more valuable than just let's, you know, let's lash out and re and have revenge because the narratives that we're taught about how justice works, tell us that that will help. I know it won't help. It didn't help me. And there are all these other reasons that we're taught that besides that it's true. So we, if we understand that it's not true, then we say, okay, what's real? Like what, what was, re what would real healing look like? What can we actually do to take steps towards it as individuals and as a community and transformative and restorative justice are those steps for me and in my work. So it's not, it's not about making light of the harm. It's about trying to deal with it as it is instead of as the place that it holds in the false narrative of justice that we're fed by the culture that we live in. Yeah, I'd say that is another common criticism is this idea that restorative justice fails to actually provide justice in the sense that we think of what justice is, mm. I guess, in our in our current society. Um, but you yeah, you essentially said that you hit the nail on the head there. Yeah, it doesn't provide punishment. That's true. It doesn't. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And if we think that justice means punishment, then, punishment. Then, yeah. yeah, then that's the only thing. Sure. Yeah. I almost wonder if there's like a a sort of a jealousy comparison sort of thing that can happen too, where if it's like I was harmed and my community's like, we're going to try this restorative process. And I'm like, but the last person that got harmed got to get the person punished and kicked out and their job <laughs> taken away. And you know, if there's like almost this weird yeah. competitive thing that can happen too. Well, or that there's that because that's what we've been doing for so long, mm. you know, that either if if you, you know, if you come out and you say someone hurt you, one of two things has happened historically. One is no one listens to you. No one cares. Eventually you go away and stop saying it. Or people listen and the person that hurts you gets kicked out. Right. If those have been the two options forever, um, then what everybody learns and internalizes is either my community kicks this person out or my community doesn't care what happened to me. Mm. Right. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh, like that binary. Um, yeah. So, you know, you, it's so powerful that you, you know, talk about your personal experience. The fact that like this personal experience of learning about your abuser being suicidal, you know, was what brought you to this work. And, so myself, you know, also having an abuser, unfortunately, you know, I've grappled with a really similar confusion, you know, like I would definitely say that like 
at my darkest moments, at my moments of feeling the most pain or the most intensely triggered or whatever, there's definitely that part of me that that just wants suffering for my abuser, you know, all, but those moments are actually surprisingly few and far between, you know, like mm. really, you know, like when, even when I'm suffering just a tiny bit less or having a good day or whatever, it's not necessarily that I don't necessarily want suffering or punishment for this person. Um, however, I know for myself, ever since learning about restorative justice as a concept, I've tried to put myself in the position, you know, hypothetically of like, what would it be like to go through that process? What would I actually need for healing? And while I don't feel aversion to the process, my brain just kind of short circuits and like, I can't even... I don't even know what it looks like. It's like, I feel like, yeah, that seems interesting, but like, I don't even have a concept of what it could possibly look like. And I think that a lot of people that I see in the community have the same thing that it's like, literally the only thing we can imagine is, is like you said, either we just forget about it and no one cares. And I just deal with it or it's big and it's punitive and there's punishment and this person gets kicked out. But anything outside of that, it's like, I can't even envision what Mm. that would look like, you know? And so I guess what I'm asking is, you know, initially I wanted to ask what's been the evolution of your feelings about your own personal situation as you continue to do this work professionally, which you kind of answered already. I'm also curious about like, what's, um, you know, for a situation like that, what is even within the realm of possibility as far as like what might actually heal that? Because I think that's mm. also a problem is people don't even have the vision, don't even know where what might we be headed with this. Yeah. So there's there's a couple of there's a couple of different sort of tracks of answers here. One is what does a restorative justice process look like in action? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's you know, there are a, a lot of ways to do it. There are as many ways to do it as there are people who do it. Um, but as an example, one thing that often happens is that the the people, the organizers who are taking responsibility for the process will convene um, groups of people who serve as support for both the person who experienced harm and the person who committed it. Um, so you would have, as the harmed party, you would have your support system around you and the responsible party would have their support system around them. In many cases, the harmed party sits in like a healing circle with their support people um, for a while, you know, the meeting regularly, um, talking about what they need um, what what support can be given to them, whether that's material support, whether that's one member of the group will come over to your house, you know, once a week uh, and bring you a casserole, whether that's we have a scheduled call with one member of the group, you know, every so every regular amount of time um, to talk about your process, whether that's the the responsible party puts money into an account for you to get trauma therapy, like whatever that looks like for you to get your support from the people that know how to give you support. Then in parallel to that, the responsible party also has a circle and a support system um, and has to be sitting in circle with people that care about them, um, that that they know won't throw them away, whose presence helps them feel safe so that they can really open up their understanding of what they did to you and why. Um, the, there's, uh, a, a, um, 
a, a, it's called a staircase of accountability. And it's basically a, a process where you go from, uh, you stop committing violence, then you come to understand the violence, you come to understand its consequences, you make repairs for the violence, for the harm, then you um, change the underlying attitudes and beliefs that led the harm, led to the harm. And then you become a healthy member of your community and you work to prevent harm on a larger scale. So you start really small. You start by saying, I'm going to not, I'm going to figure out what I did. I'm going to really understand what I did and I'm going to commit to not doing that anymore. So that's where you start. Right. And then you, you get, as you get deeper and deeper into it, you're coming to more fully understand all of the factors that impacted the series of events that led to the harm happening. You come to understand all of the things that affected both people in the interaction or all of the people in the interaction um, that led to it being harmful in the ways that it was. And the deeper your understanding, the more work you can do to mitigate that harm and future harms, right? So eventually, in many cases, the two circles will eventually come together, the survivor support circle and the responsible party support, support circle, and they'll sit in circle all together um, to give the survivor, if they want it, an opportunity to speak face to face with the person that harmed them with their mm -hmm. support system around them, you know, knowing that they're safe, knowing that nothing bad is going to happen. And they, they can just say whatever they need to say. In a lot of cases, that sort of catharsis is really, really valuable and healing. Um, it doesn't, you know, that alone is not going to solve the problem. Um, and in most cases, it's followed by the responsible party coming up with basically a, a concrete plan. Here's how I'm going to make sure that my continued existence in the world isn't continuing to harm you. Here are the ways that I'm going to make sure that my behavior in the future um, protects the, the people that I interact with in the future from the things that harmed you. Um, here are the things I'm going to do to, on a large scale, work towards a world that doesn't have this kind of violence in it. You know, here's my reading list. Here are the support groups I'm going to go to, you know, and the, the harms party has an opportunity to say, mm, I think you should read. Uh, I think you should also read how to be an anti-racist as, as well as all of these other books. You know, I think you should also go to a support group for, um, you know, for people who are addicted to what you're addicted to, or I think you should, you know, they have the opportunity in many cases to exert some influence over what's in the plan. Um, and then the plan is played out in a way that's, uh, you know, the, the responsible party is going to be compliant with it because they came up with it because they want to be different and they want to make sure that the things that hurt the harmed party don't happen anymore. So that's what it looks like, you know, as an example in, you know, in many cases on a, on a, on a general scale. Um, so that's part of the answer, which is, you know, what can this process look like? What does healing from trauma look like is a much bigger question. Um, and what does healing from trauma when you have the person who traumatized you saying, whatever you need me to do, I will do. Um, that might be a question that's more suited to a mental health professional. And often we do bring in mental health professionals to advise on this. Um, but from my understanding of trauma, which 100% comes from having a good therapist myself, <laughs> um, 
it, it's like this. Um, the, the guy that actually exists in the world that hurt me, you know, 15 years ago, uh, that dude who is currently alive and like has a job presumably and, you know, eats tacos and wears socks. He is almost entirely irrelevant to my healing. There is a version of him that lives in my head and goes around with me all the time. Um, that is all of the parts of him that hurt me, right? It's like a ghost, um, that is, that speaks to me, you know, that when I am triggered, I, you know, he, it's, it's, it's activated. That's the version of him that my healing needs to deal with. That's the version of him that needs to die and be destroyed. Not the dude who lives in like Wichita, you know, and is a used car salesman now. Like whatever happens to him doesn't actually impact my healing. The guy that needs to die is the guy in my head. Hmm. It's very powerful. It, this yeah, also, okay. That's huge. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we all need to like sit for a moment and just take just that, with that for a second. Like all of this kind of talk about like what actually is involved in healing and taking care of taking care of the person who is harmed. It, it also reminds me of something that I, I can't remember where or when I learned this. I feel like it was probably from one of those teachers that, you know, I look back on and go, wow, this teacher really helped shape the person that I am today. But it was about if something, if someone is hurt, like if they're, if they're hit in a hit and run, like kind of like your example before, or if someone, uh, you know, mugs them and runs away and you come up as this is happening, this question of what do you do? Do you go to the person who was hurt and try to take care of them? Or do you run after the person who's trying to get away with it? And mm -hmm. in my mind at the time, I remember it was like, well, obviously you try to catch the person because you got to get justice. We can't have people like that running around. And the person teaching me this was, was actually making the argument of like, no, like the person you should be caring about the most is the person who was hurt and taking care of that person. And for me, that was this like, uh, I, at the time I was just like, gosh, I really need to think about, I didn't have these words, but like, I need to think about reprogramming that impulse mm. in my mind. And I think the irony of it is that when we look at it now, not with like, oh, they're running away right now and I'm here and this person's hurt on the ground. But when we look at it more like there was abuse or not even abuse, but like a consent violation, uh, even an unintentional one or whatever of this, like, Sometimes we think that, well, the way that I can help the person who is harmed is by going after that person and hurting them instead of doing what you were just saying, which is focusing on that person who is harmed and helping them heal however you can. Like that, that's such a different thing. And we don't think it is. Well, you know, you know how um, Americans are really good at crisis response and really bad at sustained care. <laughs> Yes. Like, yes. <laughs> when there's when there's like a, a hurricane or something, Americans are like, we got this. We're going to like raise a buttload of money and send all these, you know, send tons of canned food or, you know, whatever it is. Hashtag yeah. pray for whatever it is. Right. We're going right. to pull together. We're going to do it. And then once the crisis is over, everyone sort of just dissipates and wanders off back to their regular life mm -hmm. and leaves the ongoing 
ambient radiation of the constant crisis that so many people live in to its own devices. Mm. Right. If if like if the water crisis in Flint, Michigan happened in the space of like a day instead of over a decade, it would have been fixed um, Mm. because it but because it was an ongoing problem and Americans, I mean, also because of racism but because americans don't like we are not trained to to know how to give care in an ongoing way um and also because it doesn't lend itself to like being a hero that urge is a lot less strong so like if you're if you come into a situation of harm and you go after the bad guy and you punish the bad guy and you save the work, you know, you save the day. You're the hero. You get to feel like, a, you know, like a big guy. You know, if you make a call out post online and it means that someone, you know, an abuser gets ejected from a community, you get to feel like a hero. Um, and it is a lot less heroic and glamorous to go to someone who's like traumatized and isolated and has spent, you know, however long this relationship is, um, just sort of fighting to keep their psychic boundaries intact enough to say, I don't think what's happening to me is okay to go to that person and say, Hey, I'm just going to sit with you and we can just like watch great British bake off. And I just want Mm -hmm. you to know that I'm here and I care about you and what happened to you wasn't okay. And I'm your friend. Like that's a lot less heroic and glamorous, but that's actually what we got to do. Yeah. It's, I feel like we could do like a whole nother episode. That's just about being in that role of the supporter. Mm. Um, Cause that's so key on either too. end. Right. Yeah. With, yeah. Yeah. yeah that's a good with point. Both parties. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. But, but I'm just thinking like with that sort of carceral mindset of when someone that I care about is abused this didn't happen to me, but I I want to go kill that person. I want to, you know, mm-hmm. right. Yeah, totally. The, exactly. <laughs> and then I, I well, so now we're talking yeah. about anger, right? Right. Um, yeah. And I love talking about anger because a lot of people think, well, if we're doing the restorative justice things and you don't get to be angry, right. Because mm-hmm. that's the sort of, that's the woo woo way of doing it where you don't get to be angry because if you're angry, then you, then the punishment and the, you know, all of these things. Um, and actually I think that, restorative justice has more room for anger than the carceral systems that we um, that we were trained in because it makes space for anger as an emotion instead of as um, an instead of as a, one in a series of dominoes that you don't have any control over interesting so you know how uh, sometimes you have feelings and they tell you something, but the mm-hmm. information you actually need from them is different from what the feeling is saying. Mm-hmm. You ever sure. heard that? Oh yeah. Like sure. sometimes, sometimes if I'm having like anxiety, my anxiety is like, listen, the world is dangerous. Everyone is bad. And what you got to do is hide under the bed until you die. Yeah. Right? That sounds like yeah. a good so solution. Just, yeah. Yeah. So if yeah. I just take that on, you know, at its word, I'm like, okay, cool. I'm going to go hide under the bed and then one day I'll just die under there and that sounds fine. Right. Mm-hmm. But the, the practice, right. The thing that people who call things mindfulness tend to call mindfulness is going, okay, I hear you anxiety. And I think what you're trying to tell me is I forgot to have breakfast and I should go have a sandwich. Mm-hmm. Right. 
Mm. being able to sort of translate the emotion into the information that you actually need from it. So anger is the same way, right? Anger comes to you and is like, this person needs to suffer and die. I'm going to burn down cities. I'm going to, you know, Godzilla my way through this community until my pain goes away. And the, the way of dealing with that, that we could call mindfulness is saying, okay, anger, like I hear you. And I think what you're trying to say is I'm in pain and I want to be listened to. Mm. And you know, if someone is speaking and no one's listening, of course they're going to start shouting, right? If right. someone is trying to get care and they're not being given care, of course they're going to start shouting because there's no other way to be heard. So it makes perfect sense to be angry. And I tell people, you know, when I'm working with harmed parties and I'm working with survivors, I'm like, treasure your anger. Your anger is your your system fueling your boundaries. Your anger is saying, I deserved to be safe and I was not safe and that's not right. Your anger is a part of you that knows that you shouldn't be treated in the way that you were treated. Um, and that and that knows that you shouldn't have been violated in the way that you were violated or whatever it is and is reacting to that. And that's good. You should have that knowledge. Right. You should know that you should be treated well and you should know that it's wrong for you to be treated badly. It's just that when your anger says, because I feel this way, that person needs to suffer. That's where you have to bring in the mindfulness and the discernment and say, OK, what we're actually talking about here is I'm in pain and I need care. We're not mm -hmm. actually talking about whether or not someone should suffer, just like we're not actually talking about whether I should be under the bed hiding. Mm. Right. Yeah, right. that's that a good sense. way to put that. It makes a lot of sense. So before we conclude our episode today, we wanted to ask you, Andy, what are some actionable takeaways for our listeners? Because we like to give people some things that they can do within their own lives, maybe to continue to like implement all of these great things that you've talked to us about today into their own communities and into their own lives. So are there some actionable takeaways that you have for this? Yeah, I know we've been, you know, we've been talking about some really big systems and it can seem mm -hmm. really overwhelming. Um, but the cool thing is that uh, that we um, we don't actually have to believe what we're told to believe and that changing the way that we look at this stuff actually starts to change our behavior as individuals and then as groups and then as communities. Um, so the. Mm. a lot of these systems require everyone to believe them in order for them to work, right? Like Ursula K. Le Guin says, capitalism seems inescapable, but so did the divine right of kings. Mm. Uh, and so one of, the, one of the things that I think is worth just gently turning your attention to when, when you can um, is when you feel the urge to classify someone as good or bad, um, to pause and, and think about it um, and think about who benefits from me classifying this person as good or bad, um, who benefits from me living in a world where people can be rendered worthless or valuable by their actions instead of having inherent worth because they are a human and alive. And 
what would it be like if I if I could hold the truths simultaneously that someone can do things that are genuinely unacceptable and that they are still a human and alive and therefore valuable and don't deserve to be thrown away. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think that's just sort of, you know, it's just about taking a pause when you feel a reaction and, um, and letting yourself contextualize what you're seeing and what your reaction is in the context of your understanding of the systems that we live in and how you've been taught to react to things. Is that how you want to react to this? Or do you want to react to it in a different way? Well, sounds like some super easy homework. If I've ever heard <laughs> Just it. change your reactions. Go. The, other, the other thing that I think is a little more easy um, is working to, um, to make sure that in all of your relationships, um, you've got open lines of communication about things that are hard, even, um, even when it's scary. So, Hmm. like I said, people only shout when they've tried talking and they weren't heard. And so if you make sure that in all of your relationships, like your partners know, if I did something that hurt you, I want to know, you know, I won't be angry at you for telling me I won't, you know, punish you, I won't respond in a way that, um, that hurts more, like I will, I will hold that. And if I am upset about it, then I will deal with that. And then I will come back and take care of you. Right. Making sure that you are a safe person to say no to and that you are a safe person to say, hey, that wasn't okay." to um, both moves us closer to a world where this sort of thing doesn't have to happen and makes sure that if someone, you know, makes sure that like you're not going to end up having an argument online about what you did or didn't do in your relationship um, because your partners feel safe enough to talk to you. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And I really love that. Um, And we are going to keep talking about this in our bonus episode, uh, specifically about some of those online arguments, perhaps, um, and about how restorative and transformative justice plays out in online communities. Um, Before we go, Andy, uh, are there some good resources that people can turn to if listeners specifically want to learn more about restorative justice and transformative justice that you recommend? Yeah. So one of the best resources uh, that I have is the Creative Interventions Toolkit. Um, it's put out by generation five and, uh, it's the whole PDF is free online. It's like a 600 page PDF, but don't oh. be intimidated because you don't have to read it from beginning to end to use it. It's a, it's a workbook. Okay. Um, there's also an anthology called fumbling towards repair, I think, which is a, um, it's a workbook for facilitators in particular, so that's um, that's definitely worth a read, whether you're already a facilitator or you want to be one or you're just you just want to learn more about the processes. Um, but those two things, I think, are the most practical resources for what does it look like to manifest these ideas in my actual behavior? Wow, that's fantastic. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so also, you know, you work for the Chosen Family Law Center. Um, you know, listeners will know the Chosen Family Law Center because of Diana Adams, who's been on the show a number of times. Um, tell us a little bit more about the Chosen Family Law Center, about the fundraiser that you have coming up and where people can find more information about that and about your work as well. Yeah, so I, um, I'm the the 
a senior legal director at the Chosen Family Law Center, which is a small nonprofit that does mostly education and direct services for people who live in family structures that aren't otherwise legible to institutions and to the state. Um, so that includes polyamorous people, but it's not just polyamorous people. Um, but we we do education for other professionals to help them work with these populations in a culturally proficient way. We do public education for members of our communities to make sure that they're getting everything they need out of the systems um, and that they're able to have their families be as protected as possible. And then we do direct legal services for members of our communities who um, who can't afford private representation. So um, we have a nonprofit uh, fundraiser coming up in April, uh, on April 30th, um, because doing all of that stuff uh, apparently takes money. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I'm, I'm mad about having to participate in capitalism too, but we haven't mm-hmm. destroyed it yet. So we still got to have our fundraisers. Um, so, but I, you know, I'm not mad about an excuse to have a party and, uh, and get dressed up. So it's April 30th at seven o'clock. Um, and you can find more information about it on our website, which is chosenfamilylawcenter.org. Got it. And, and on chosenfamilylawcenter.org is also where people can find those educational resources and that's right. legal counsel and stuff like that yep. if they need yep. it. Yep, that's also how you can get our services. Um, you can also follow the organization on Twitter at Chosen Family Law Center or me on Twitter at uh, Andy Eyeballs. <laughs> Great. Love it. Awesome. Well, we would love to hear from you, our listeners, about what you thought about this episode and restorative justice and restorative transformative justice as well. All of those great things. Uh, and so the best place to share your thoughts with other listeners is on this episode's discussion thread in our private Facebook group or Discord chat. You can get access to these groups and join our exclusive community by going to patreon.com slash multiamory. In addition, you can share with us publicly on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. You can email us at info at multiamory.com. Leave us a voicemail at 678-MULTI-05. Or you can leave us a voice message on Facebook. Multiamory is created and produced by Dedeker Winston, Jace Lindgren, and me, Emily Matlack. Our episodes are edited by Mauricio Balvanera. Our social media wizard is Will McMillan. Our production assistants are Rachel Shenowark and Carson Collins. Our theme song is Forms I Know I Did by Josh and Anand from the Fractal Cave EP. The full transcript is available on this episode's page on multiamory.com. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen.